This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Survivor Stories. So far, we've heard about a young girl who survived being kidnapped and was hidden away in an underground bunker, as well as the account of another young woman who was kidnapped and attacked by the infamous serial killer, Ted Bundy. Today's episode is especially chilling, since the victim almost lost her life to someone who had vowed to protect and love her, her own husband. This is a tale of a horrific case of domestic violence and attempted murder, committed by a very dangerous man. If domestic violence is a trigger for you, you may want to skip parts of this episode. I will give a warning before I go into the details as they unfolded, on June 10, 1983, the day 22-year-old Tracy Thurman was brutally beaten by her estranged husband and almost lost her life. The fact that she survived was considered a miracle, and the outcome of her story became a victory, not just for her, but for many others who have been victims of intimate partner violence. This is Chapter 3, The Story of Tracy Thurman. Tracy Thurman calls herself a mama's girl. She grew up in Connecticut and says her mom was her whole life. She was so devoted to her that Tracy dropped out of school in the 10th grade when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. She wanted to take care of her and did so until her mother died in 1979, when Tracy was just 17 years old. Distraught at the loss of her mother, Tracy decided to leave Torrington, Connecticut and the painful memories. She ended up in Florida, where she found work as a motel maid. Not long after arriving she noticed a group of men who were staying at the motel. They were all employed with a construction company that was working on a building site nearby. One man in particular stood out to Tracy. Charles Thurman was 20 years old, with dark curly hair and a muscular build. He was called Buck by his friends and family. Buck began smiling and chatting with the 18-year-old motel maid. Tracy was pretty, with dark hair and dark eyes that lit up when she smiled. And she did so often when she was around the young construction worker. They found themselves attracted to each other immediately, and before long, were living together. When she first met him, Tracy says he made her feel safe and secure. He was very protective of her, and that felt nice, especially since she was all alone so far away from home and family. But Buck wasn't just trying to protect Tracy. She soon discovered he was very jealous and possessive, and had a quick temper when he thought anyone was a threat to his relationship with her. He would yell and sometimes punch walls when he was upset. At first, Tracy wasn't afraid of him. She would yell back at him when he would start screaming and yelling. I just thought, you're an asshole, she said. The first time he hit her, she hit him back. Buck had told her that he'd had an abusive childhood. His father had been an alcoholic who had beat his own wife when Buck was just a child. His father had since completed a rehabilitation program and was no longer a violent man. So even though Tracy didn't like Buck's temper, she excused it somewhat and also felt sorry for him, so she forgave him. His father had changed, she told herself, so maybe Buck would too. Then Tracy found out she was pregnant. Buck had become increasingly abusive to her, but she didn't want to raise her child without his father. She also thought that perhaps becoming a father would cause him to change. She could change him, she thought. He just needed to have the love of her and their baby. Charles Jr., or CJ, was born in August 1981. Buck had talked her into marrying him while she was pregnant. 
Tracy hadn't wanted to get married, seeing as they already had problems, but felt it was the right thing to do for the baby. And she still loved Buck, so they married when Tracy was four months pregnant. But Buck became even more angry, abusive, and controlling in the first few months of their son's life. The marriage and the happy family she once dreamed of became a nightmare. Becoming a husband and father just seemed to make Buck angrier. He'd bring up his own unhappy childhood and resented Tracy's love and attention for CJ. He'd take out his anger at his wife whenever the mood struck him, beating and even raping her. She finally couldn't take the abuse anymore and left Buck in October of 1982 after another vicious beating. She traveled home to Torrington, Connecticut with CJ to live with her friends Rick and Judy. Just two weeks later, Buck showed up in Torrington. He walked into Judy and Rick's home and began to attack his wife for leaving him. They called the police, telling them they needed assistance. They had to call three times that night. When the police came, they spoke to Buck and to Tracy, but they considered it a matter between husband and wife and declined to take any action. When they left, Buck would again begin to threaten and attack his wife. Again, the police were called and simply told him to cool off and leave the premises. They didn't arrest him or intervene further, even though Tracy and her friends reported the assault. Buck even threatened Tracy in front of the officers, but they still didn't take any action. Finally, getting no cooperation from the officers, Rick and Judy made a formal request with the police to keep Buck off their property. A few days later, on November 5th, Buck returned to the home and attacked and choked Tracy, He then grabbed 15-month-old CJ and ran from the house. He told her if she called the cops, he would kill her. Tracy and Rick went to the police department to report this and seek their help in getting the baby back from Buck. The Torrington Police Department refused to take the complaint. Buck was Tracy's husband and the baby's father. There was nothing they could do, they told her. They refused to even take a complaint of trespassing from Rick. Tracy had to deal with Buck herself and was able to talk him into returning her son by promising to talk to him about getting back together. Instead, she sought out a public defender to file for divorce. Maybe if they weren't legally married anymore, she thought, the police would take her complaints against Buck more seriously. The city didn't have the resources to handle the amount of divorce cases that were being filed, so Tracy took a class the city offered to learn the steps to do her own divorce. She found that nearly all of the women who were in the class with her had experienced domestic violence as well. Just a few days after Buck took CJ, he saw Tracy sitting in her car waiting at a stoplight in town. He began screaming threats at her. An officer, Neil Jamelli, happened to be standing nearby and observed the scene. He did not intervene. Buck then broke the windshield of Tracy's car while she sat inside. Seeing this, Officer Jamelli approached Buck and put him under arrest. Apparently, destroying property was a criminal offense, while beating and threatening your spouse was not. He was taken into custody and charged with breach of peace. He received a suspended sentence of six months and a two-year conditional discharge and was immediately released from custody. He was also finally ordered to stay away from Tracy as well as Rick and Judy's residence. Tracy was informed of Buck's arrest and the conditions of his release. Less than two months later, Buck once again returned to harass and threaten Tracy. She called the police and explained that her soon-to-be ex-husband had a conditional release that forbade him from harassing her. They declined to respond and made no attempt to arrest him on a probation violation. Perhaps now, sensing that there would not be any consequences, 
Buck stepped up his harassment and threats against Tracy. In the first five months of 1983, Tracy made numerous phone calls to the police department requesting help. Buck continued to threaten her with violence. Still, the police did nothing. Buck had taken a job as a dishwasher at a diner in town. The diner was frequently visited by several Torrington police officers. Buck even repeated his threats against Tracy in front of the officers. He told several diner customers that he planned to kill his wife and even showed them a knife he carried. In April, Tracy was able to file for divorce. On May 5th, Tracy and Judy made another report to the police department. Buck had threatened to shoot them. Tracy wanted an arrest warrant issued for Buck, since he was in violation of his conditional discharge. The officer on duty took Tracy's written complaint, but refused to take Judy's complaint. After writing out the complaint, the officer told Tracy to return on June 1st, three weeks later. At that time, he said, he or another officer would seek an arrest warrant for Buck. The following day, Tracy filed an application for a restraining order against Buck in the Litchfield Superior Court. That same day, the court issued a restraining order that forbid him from assaulting, threatening, or harassing Tracy. On May 27th, Buck began threatening Tracy once again with violence. She requested a police officer to come and take her to police headquarters. She was too afraid to travel there alone, as Buck had threatened to kill her if he saw her. At the police station, she requested a warrant for Buck's arrest. She reminded them of the restraining order that Buck continually violated. She was told that she would have to wait, since it was the Memorial Day weekend. They told her to call on Tuesday, May 31st, four days later, to pursue the warrant request. She returned to the Torrington Police Department on May 31st, only to be told that the only officer who could help her with the warrant request was on vacation. Now, they said, she would have to wait until he returned. Later that day, Tracy's brother-in-law, Joseph Koshish, called the police department to complain about their lack of action on Tracy's complaint. He was told that they were planning to serve the arrest warrant on Buck on June 8th. June 8th came and went, and no arrest happened. Tracy Thurman had spent eight months trying to get help to deal with her abusive estranged husband, Charles Buck Thurman. She'd made police reports that had gone ignored and filed a restraining order that the police chose not to enforce. She'd spent almost a year after leaving Buck, being continually stalked, harassed, and threatened with violence and death by him. The Torrington Police Department continued to treat it as a family matter. They didn't respond seriously to her calls and continually put her off. What happened next was almost predictable, although more brutal than anyone probably could have imagined. I'll give you fair warning. The details I'm about to share describe one of the most vicious incidents of domestic violence that I've ever encountered. On June 10, 1983, Buck Thurman arrived at Rick and Judy's home in the afternoon and demanded to speak with Tracy. Tracy did not go outside like he wanted, but stayed indoors and called the police. It was 1.20 p.m., once again, she requested that officers come and pick up Charles Thurman on a probation violation and again reminded them that she had a restraining order in effect. She waited for the police to arrive for over 15 minutes, at which time Buck became increasingly angry, loud, and demanding outside. He was threatening to come in and snatch 22-month-old CJ again. Get your fucking ass down here or I'm coming up, he threatened. 
Tracy decided to go outside and talk to him to try and calm him down and prevent him from trying to take the baby. You see, while Buck used their child as an excuse for harassing Tracy, saying he wanted to see his son and that he had a right to do so, it was clear to everyone, especially Tracy, that this was not his actual goal. What Buck wanted was for Tracy to come back to him where he could once again control her. He thought of Tracy as his possession. He controlled her with threats and violence while they were together, and once she left, he was furious that she was free and no longer under his thumb. The only thing he wanted was Tracy back under his control, where he would most certainly continue to abuse her physically, mentally, and emotionally. Tracy knew this and was desperate to keep herself and her child away from him. Fearing for her son and not seeing the police yet, she made the decision to go downstairs to talk to him outside. Twenty minutes had passed since she'd made the emergency call. As she reached the front yard, a police vehicle pulled up across the street. The officer did not immediately exit his vehicle. Buck saw the patrol car and became enraged. You called the cops. You called the fucking cops, he screamed at her. She saw him reach into his back pocket. She knew he kept a knife on him. She turned to run, but he quickly reached out and grabbed her by her hair. He dragged her into the backyard of the house. The next thing she knew, Tracy says, he was all over me. He stabbed her in the face and then threw her to the ground. He stabbed her repeatedly in the back of the neck, while Tracy tried desperately to shield herself from the knife. Meanwhile, the lone officer who arrived first went to the front door and knocked, although screams and shouts could be heard coming from the back of the house. Officer Petrovitz then went to the back of the house and saw Buck standing over Tracy with a bloody knife. Buck then kicked Tracy in the head and ran into the house. The officer still made no move to subdue Tracy's attacker. Buck returned with the toddler, CJ. He dropped the child on his wounded mother and exclaimed, I killed your fucking mother. The officer called for backup and then called out to Buck to drop the knife, but made no attempt to protect Tracy, who was bleeding on the ground. Buck then stomped on Tracy's head, breaking her neck. Three other officers arrived on the scene just then, but they also continued to allow Buck to walk around free and threaten Tracy. A crowd had gathered, and some bystanders tried to intervene, putting themselves between Buck and Tracy. An ambulance arrived, and the officers still had not put Buck in handcuffs or subdued him. Instead, they began trying to put Tracy on a stretcher to be loaded into the ambulance. However, the paramedics who'd arrived told officers that they could do this themselves. They were ignored. As the stretcher was being put into the ambulance, Buck jumped in trying to attack the unconscious Tracy one more time. Finally, at this time, he was put in handcuffs and arrested. Tracy had been stabbed in the face, shoulders, and neck. The knife had cut three holes into her esophagus, she almost drowned in her own blood. Her neck was broken where she'd been stomped by Buck's heavy work boot. Her spinal cord had been damaged, and she was partially paralyzed. She had an emergency tracheotomy surgery, and there were tubes placed down her throat so she could breathe. Miraculously, she survived, although she spent months in the hospital and then rehab. Her doctors told her she would never walk again, but she refused to give up. When she was strong enough, she began physical therapy. The nerve damage she sustained caused her to have sensation on her right side, but limited control. She had more control of the left side of her body, but no feeling. She spent five months in rehab, 
and her progress was slow going and frustrating, but Tracy was determined. When she was later told to cut down her physical therapy to one time a week, she insisted on going three days a week. After eight months, she was able to stop using her wheelchair. She also had physical scars from the attack. Her face and back were badly scarred from the knife wounds. As well, she remained with a large scar across her neck from the emergency tracheotomy. She and CJ, who was just under two years old at the time of the attack, were separated for eight months. When she returned home, CJ was scared of her. He spit at her and cried that he wanted his real mommy. Even with all the physical therapy, Tracy was still left with limited mobility. Her right leg remained very weak, and she didn't have full movement in her right arm or hand. She had no feeling in her left fingertips or from her left knee to her toes. She walks by pulling her right leg behind her and has to walk slowly with a heel-to-toe motion. She kept practicing on a treadmill until she grew strong enough to walk everywhere. She was also left with emotional scars. While in rehab, she would panic whenever she was around the male patients, afraid of being attacked again. She realized that this was an irrational reaction. Many of them were injured and in wheelchairs themselves, but she couldn't help it. Charles Buck Thurman was taken into custody and charged with the assault on Tracy. Still angry and unrepentant, he loudly told his father during his one allowed phone call that he would, quote, finish what he started. He swore to get revenge on Tracy for sending him to jail. In 1984, he was sentenced to a 20-year term in a maximum security prison. His sentence was later reduced on appeal. He was released from prison in 1991 after serving just seven years. Tracy still feared that Buck would try and take revenge and finish the job as he had promised. As a condition of his probation for five years after his release, he was ordered to have no contact in any way with Tracy or her son. As Tracy was in the hospital fighting for her life and then learning to walk and talk again, she still has trouble speaking and gets winded quickly due to the injury to her esophagus. Her family was outraged by the police department's failure to take Tracy's concerns about Buck seriously or enforce the restraining order. It was her sister Cheryl who called attorney Burton Weinstein to ask about a possible lawsuit. When Weinstein came to visit Tracy, she still had tubes in her throat and couldn't speak. Weinstein said he thought on his way home after seeing her, there's got to be a case. I don't want my daughters growing up in a community that allows this to happen. Weinstein filed a federal lawsuit naming the City of Torrington, the Torrington Police Department, and 29 of the department's officers as defendants. He argued in court that the police had violated Tracy's 14th Amendment rights, failing to protect her by not giving her complaints the same weight because they were perpetrated on her by her husband. The 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution addresses citizenship rights and equal protection of the laws. Tracy Thurman was the first woman in the United States to bring a lawsuit against a police department for negligence and violation of civil rights. The Torrington police, Weinstein argued, consistently afforded lesser protection when the victim is a woman abused or assaulted by a spouse or boyfriend. Tracy would say that she felt sorry for Officer Petrovitz, the first officer on the scene that day. She felt he was made a scapegoat and thought that the whole police department was at fault. They were not trained correctly, she says, 
and also says that the department, knowing Buck's history of threats and violence, should have sent more than one officer. Officer Petrovich retired from the force soon after the attack and died in 2007. However, she may have been generous in her forgiveness of Petrovitz. In court, witnesses testified that while Tracy lay bleeding on the ground after being stabbed by Buck, the officer took time to first take the knife that Buck threw on the ground and secure it in the trunk of his car before even attempting to protect the wounded Tracy or subdue Buck. It was during this time that Buck was able to return to stomp on Tracy and break her neck. As well, when questioned on the stand as to why he hadn't immediately tried to help protect Tracy, Petrovitz said he, quote, hadn't seen a body. When asked if he hadn't heard the screams coming from the backyard, he responded that he had heard a scream, but for all he knew, the man might have stabbed a dog or a chicken. Tracy's lawsuit against the city and the police department was successful. 24 of the 29 officers named in the lawsuit were also found guilty of violating her civil rights. She was awarded $2.3 million. The lawsuit was then settled for $1.9 million. $100,000, or about $230,000 in today's dollars, went towards her medical bills. Tracy avoided publicity during the first years after her attack, but privately counseled women who were victims of domestic violence at the Susan B. Anthony Project, a women's advocacy center and shelter in Torrington. Tracy's attack and the lawsuit brought attention to domestic violence and the way that law enforcement in Connecticut responded to this type of crime. Statistics would show that 25% of all police calls in the state involved domestic violence at that time. In 1986, Governor William O'Neill signed into law the Family Violence Prevention and Response Act that required police to respond as aggressively to domestic violence complaints as they would to any other type of violent crime. It became known as Thurman Law, and Tracy was present to witness the signing. In 1989, NBC aired a television movie titled A Cry for Help, The Tracy Thurman Story. The movie starred Nancy McKeon as Tracy and Dale Midkiff as Buck. The screenwriter, Beth Sullivan, worked from Tracy's own account as well as court transcripts. Tracy was paid $70,000 as a consultant on the film. Also in 1989, Tracy married Mike Matuzic, a carpenter. They remained living in Torrington, where Tracy had family, including several siblings and friends, as well as community support. Matuzic later adopted CJ. Buck Thurman's parental rights were terminated in 1988, while he was imprisoned. After Buck Thurman's release from prison in 1991... He stayed away from Tracy and CJ, even though he'd made repeated threats to kill her while he was incarcerated. When his five-year probationary period was over, Tracy filed a court order to have a permanent restraining order put into place. As well, the Matuziks had installed a state-of-the-art security system in their home. Buck Thurman moved to East Hampton, Massachusetts, taking a job as a custodian. There he met another woman and fathered a child. When the relationship ended, he moved into a small apartment that was, ironically, located just yards from the East Hampton Police Department. His ex-girlfriend filed for a restraining order in 1998. In the application, she wrote that Thurman had begun abusing her in 1993. She reported that he choked her in the presence of their son and threatened her life if she ever tried to leave him. She left for Florida after this incident, 
and only filed for a restraining order when she returned to Massachusetts. But things had changed since Thurman had been in prison. Now laws were enforced to protect victims and punish abusers. A six-month restraining order was immediately put into place. At that time, Thurman requested visitation with his son. He was ordered to pay $85 a week in child support and was granted supervised visits with his son for two hours every Saturday at a local YWCA facility. Thurman soon found out how seriously restraining orders were now taken. He was charged with violating the restraining order in 1999 when he pulled his car up next to his ex-girlfriend's and honked the horn to get his son's attention. He was arrested and booked into jail. He was soon released on his own recognizance. Since then, there are no records of any violations by Buck Thurman. Thurman has since remarried a woman named Christine. At last report, he was still living in Massachusetts. He has not contacted Tracy again. However, to this day, he still has never expressed remorse for attempting to kill the mother of his child. Tracy Thurman is still married to Mike Matuzik. She is now 57 years old. She sometimes still feels angry that she has the physical pain and scars from her attack. She stays out of the limelight, only occasionally giving interviews. She sometimes speaks to victims of domestic violence at local events. She was diagnosed with thyroid cancer in 2006. During the surgery to remove her thyroid, surgeons found two straight pieces of the gland. One piece was located behind her collarbone and another in her lung. They had been sliced off during the attack. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Become a Patreon supporter for bonus content, including additional information and updates on cases for each series. There will be a bonus episode for the Survivor Stories series later this month. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to join. Thanks. For domestic violence help and resources, you can reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or at thehotline.org. For sexual assault help and resources, call 1-800-656-HOPE or go to rain.org. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our social media marketing assistant is Nancy Chen, and original music was created by Cesare Gray Music. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.